take your Bible and turn to the book of Daniel. We're picking back up in our study of the book of Daniel in Daniel chapter 8. And we are going to start in Daniel chapter 8 verse 15. That's where we're at here this morning in our sermon series as we're studying the book of Daniel. So as we begin here, let me remind us of some of the things that we learned in the first part of this chapter. In verses 1 through 14, uh, we studied that uh, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, is where we uh, finished the first part of this chapter. And what we've seen is that Daniel has a vision. Daniel has a vision, and he has a vision of a ram with two horns, a male goat with one big horn, and this big horn's broken and replaced by four horns, one of which, out of one of which comes a little horn. So lots of horns, lots of animals mentioned here. So here's what's happening. Daniel is in Babylon and he has a vision. And in his vision, he's transported to the capital of the Medo-Persian Empire, Shushan. And while Daniel's there, he sees a ram, which is a male sheep with two horns. And this ram comes charging from the east to the west, to the north, and to the south, dominating everyone and everything in his path. Then suddenly, a male goat appears from the west. And this male goat is moving swiftly across the surface of the earth. And the most notable thing about this male goat is he's got this big horn coming out of the top of his head. I guess probably looks something like a unicorn. And this male goat conquers the ram, conquers, defeats the ram. But at the apex of his power, He's broken and replaced by four horns. And out of these four horns, out of one of these four horns, comes a little horn. So the little horn's related to the male goat. And this little horn oppresses the Jews and defiles the temple in Jerusalem. And his desecration of Jerusalem and the temple will last 2,300 days, or six years and four months. So this is what we've seen. This is what we've seen so far. And there's a lot of symbolism and uh, a lot of imagery in here that can be confusing. But today we're coming to the interpretation. We're going to see what all of this means. And, and when we look at this interpretation, verses 15 through 27... This portion of scripture can be divided up into six parts, I think. Six parts. That's at least one way to do it. We're going to see the setting in verses 15 through 17a, first part of verse 17. We're going to see the focus of the interpretation, the second part of verse 17 through verse 19. We're going to see the interpretation of the ram in verse 20. Then the interpretation of the male goat in verses 21 through 22. 
And then the interpretation of the little horn in verses 23 through 26. And finally, we'll see Daniel's reaction to all this in verse 27. So your notes are in front of you there. You can just follow right along. It's all spelled out there. Now, the, the thing as we just look at how this portion of Scripture is divided up, one thing that should stand out to us is that of, out of all the things that are going to be mentioned in this interpretation, more time is spent on the interpretation of the little horn than anything else. There's almost twice as many words and twice as many verses used to explain the little horn than anything else in this interpretation. Now, what's that tell us? It tells us that's probably the most important aspect of all of this. This is the thing that Daniel wants to know uh, the most about. It's the thing that he needs to understand. And so let's look at first the setting here. The setting, verse 15 through the beginning of verse 17. Then it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly... There stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came, that's Gabriel, came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. So notice there's... Three people who are mentioned here. Daniel's mentioned, Gabriel's mentioned, uh, people, persons, beings. Daniel, Gabriel, and then there's a voice. And there's got to be a person behind the voice. So three people are mentioned here. Three persons. Daniel, Gabriel, and then there's this voice. And notice at the beginning of the setting here, there's a pause. There's a pause. This pause comes after the vision and before the interpretation. And this pause allows Daniel to wonder, what does this vision mean? I just saw this ram with two horns. I just saw this male goat that had one horn sticking out of its head that gets broken and four horns come up in its place. I just saw this little horn. What does all this mean? It's a good Good question. That's the question Daniel had. And he, he's wondering about this and this time, this pause between the vision and the interpretation. And as he's thinking about what this means, suddenly Gabriel appears. Suddenly, Daniel comes face to face with Gabriel, the angel. Now, it doesn't say that right away. It says suddenly there was one who had the appearance of a man standing there. Okay, but we know this is Gabriel because the voice tells us this is Gabriel. So you got Daniel wondering what the vision means, and then Gabriel shows up, and then the voice says, Gabriel, tell Daniel what all this means. Give him understanding so he, he knows what all of this means. And this voice comes out of the Uli River. It says between the banks. What's between the banks of a river? The river. <laughs> the river. So it comes out of the river. Okay, now we're not told who the voice is, but think of it this way. Gabriel's an angel. Um, 
Who do angels work for? The Lord. So the voice tells Gabriel what to do, and I think we're okay to conclude that this is the Lord speaking, telling Gabriel to give Daniel understanding. Now, notice the response to Gabriel. Notice Daniel's response to Gabriel here in verse 17. It says, when Gabriel comes over to Daniel, Daniel's afraid. Now, that's an appropriate response to an angel. Okay? Now, oftentimes in the Bible, when angels appear, we think good things happen. You know, at the birth of Jesus, the event surrounding the birth of Jesus, an angel appears to who? At the beginning. Go back before, he appears to, before an angel appears to Mary. An angel appears to Zacharias. Okay? Angel, angel appears to Mary. Angel appears to Joseph. A lot of angelic activity all here surrounding the birth of Jesus. And that was all announcing good stuff. But do you know that more often than not, when an angel shows up, bad things happen. Judgment happens. Think about the judgments in the book of Revelation. Almost all these judgments are, are uh, exercised or accomplished by angels. Think about in the history of Israel. When Jerusalem is surrounded by the Assyrian king Sennacherib and uh, King Hezekiah doesn't know what to do, the Lord sends his angel to the army of the Assyrians. And in a single night, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers are killed by an angel. So oftentimes, angels don't bring good news. So if you were to see an angel, you're trying to decide, is this good or bad? Daniel was afraid. That's a good response. He was afraid, and he fell on his face. The way it says it here, it's almost like he bowed down before the angel, but he's not bowing down before the angel. When it says he fell on his face, it's like if you walk out of here and you trip over the threshold and you fall on your face. He fell down forward on his face. Verse 18 lets us know that he actually fainted. He actually fainted here. So at this point in the setting of the interpretation, we notice that Daniel's wondering about the vision what it's all about, and suddenly he comes face to face with Gabriel, a very important and powerful angel, and it's Gabriel who will give him the interpretation. So that's the setting. Now I want us to see what the focus of this interpretation will be, the focus. This picks up in the next part of verse 17 and goes through verse 19. But he, Gabriel, said to me, that's Daniel, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and stood me upright. So he's out. He's, he's not conscious when he speaks, and he's got to get him up. Verse 19. And he said, look. I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at the appointed time, the end shall be. 
So this focus, the focus of this vision and interpretation is the end, not the process necessarily, but the focus is on the end. And that tells us why so much attention is given to the little horn. It's focused at the end. There's three phrases in these verses that express this idea of the end to us. In verse 17, if you look at the very last part of the verse, it says the time of the end. In verse 19, two times it expresses this. At the beginning of the verse, or really the middle of the verse, it says, in the latter time of the indignation. Again, that's to the end, the latter time. And finally, it says at the last phrase of verse 19, at the appointed time, the end shall be. So the focus here is on the end. But the question we need to ask is the end of what? The end of what? You know, multiple things have ends, have conclusions. Well, what's this talking about? What's the end here? What's the conclusion that's speaking of here? Well, let's start real basic and say this has to be something in the future, right? The end that is being spoken of is something in the future. But secondly, I want you to see that it's related to the coming of the Messiah, Okay, this end is related to the coming of the Messiah. Um, we might think the end is talking about all sorts of things or even the ultimate end, but re be reminded, Daniel's a Jew. He's interested in Jewish things. And this part of the book of Daniel is giving us God's prophetic plan that he has for the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, and therefore we have to think about it in terms of a Jewish mindset. And when the Jew thinks about the end, it is always connected to the coming of the Messiah. Always connected to when the Messiah will come. Because when Messiah comes, everything will be settled Everything will be accomplished. Everything will be restored. It will be the end. And so this is a connection to the coming of the Messiah. And so from Daniel's perspective, from Daniel's perspective, when he heard, saw this vision and he's hearing the interpretation, this is all prophetic it is unfulfilled prophecy. It's all future to Daniel. It's all in the future. In fact, it's at least 10 years into the future. And some of it goes even farther into the future than that. It's all future. Now, from our perspective on this prophecy that we're studying, everything here is fulfilled. Every single thing mentioned here has been fulfilled. But there is an aspect of the little horn that is prefiguring the one who comes at the end of time to lead a rebellion against the Lord. We call that one the Antichrist. So when we're talking about the end, we're talking about the end of God's work at this particular time with these Gentile nations, okay, with the Gentile nations. So uh, Gabriel gives us a focus or a, 
the point of the vision. And he's, he's saying to Daniel, hey, look, I'm giving you information about a specific time in the future when the indignation, the expression of God's wrath is going to be over in connection to the Gentile nations. This is in the future. This is off into the future. And I just think it's really interesting. Because you know me well enough by now to know I did not plan to preach this chapter during the month of December. But I think it's very interesting that here we are in the month of December. We're getting ready to celebrate the first coming of the Messiah. Okay, we say the birth of Jesus. But the birth of Jesus is the first coming of the Messiah of Israel. We're getting ready to celebrate that. And this particular chapter is giving us information that sets the stage for the first coming of Jesus Christ. It sets the stage for his birth. We'll talk a little bit more about this later. But I just think it's interesting that when we look at the setting here, when we see the focus of this prophecy, it is giving us information about the coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. So um, now we're going to move quickly to the interpretation of the ram and the male goat. This is points three and four there on your notes. We're going to be brief here because the Bible's brief here. Okay, so verse 20. The ram which you saw having two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. There you go. There's no more. That's all he says. Just this one uh, sentence here about the ram. So the, the ram represents the united Medo-Persian Empire. Okay, the empire of Media and Persia. The two horns of the ram represent the two branches of that empire. One horn represents the Medes or Media. And the other horn represents the Persians or Persia. These two kingdoms were united under Cyrus the Great. Now we've already learned something about Cyrus the Great. If you can just hold your finger here, flip back to chapter 5, the end of chapter 5. And if you look at the last two verses in chapter 5... These last two verses are telling us what happens on October 12, 539 B.C. And it says that very night Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years of, old, uh, years of age. Now, we, when we went over this, we explained how Darius the Mede is probably another title for Cyrus. Okay, and then we gave a bunch of reasons uh, for that. So this happened on October 12, 539 B.C. Cyrus the Great is the one who united the Medo-Persian Empire together, and he is the one who conquers Babylon. Now go back to the beginning of chapter 8. So chapter 5 is the last year, the final year of Belshazzar's reign as king, in Daniel chapter 8, verse 1, it says that chapter 8 is in the third year of Belshazzar's reign. Now again, I'm not a mathematician, but I know 
chapter 8, chronologically, according to history, came before chapter 5. Because chapter 5 is when Belshazzar dies, chapter 8, Belshazzar still alive. 8 has to come before 5 in the, in the chronological order of these chapters. Okay, It's not a big deal, but what we should note is that when Daniel received the vision and the interpretation in chapter 8, he did not know that the Medes and the Persians were going to conquer Babylon. He did not know that yet. So here's the ram. The ram is the Medo-Persian Empire who will eventually conquer Babylon. Actually, 10 years later, they're going to conquer Babylon. Then we have the male goat. The male goat in chapter 8, verses 21 and 22. Verse 21 tells us the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. So the male goat represents the empire of Greece, the Grecian empire. The horn represents Alexander the Great, who is the first king of the empire of Greece. The this horn being broken indicates the death of Alexander the Great. And the four horns that come up in place of the one big horn represent the dividing of Alexander's kingdom into four smaller kingdoms. So what we see here in relation to the male goat is that the four horns come up in place of the one large horn. The four horns represent four kings and four kingdoms that replace Alexander the Great and the, the big empire that he had. These four horns are four of Alexander's generals. When Alexander the Great was at the peak of his power, when he was at the apex of, a, of his power, he died. He died on June 13th, 323 B.C. Maybe you should write that in your Bible where it talks about the broken horn. June 13th, 323 B.C. Alexander the Great dies of a fever at the age of 33. After he dies, there's a short time of disagreement <laughs> and maneuvering. But eventually, his kingdom is divided into four parts. Uh, a king named Cassander rules over Macedonia and Greece. The second king named Lysimachus rules over Thrace, Bithynia, and most of Asia Minor, what we think of modern-day Turkey. The third king, his name was Ptolemy, and he rules over Egypt. And the fourth king, the king... And the kingdom that we have the most interest in is Seleucus, who reigns over Syria and most of the Middle East. And so we have a ram and we have a male goat here, and these have all been mentioned before. I give you a chart there in your notes. If you want to look at that chart real quick, you'll see the ram and the male goat that are there in the left-hand column, and then the kingdoms they represent are in the next column to the right 
The ram is uh, Medo-Persia, and the male goat is Greece. These are the second and third Gentile kingdoms, prophetic Gentile kingdoms that have been mentioned. And you see how they fit into chapters 2 and 7 there. Daniel chapter 2, the ram, Medo-Persian empire. The second kingdom is the upper body of silver. Chapter 7, it's the bear. The male goat, the Greece The empire of Greece, the third Gentile kingdom, is the lower body of bronze, the leopard with wings. Now, what this tells us is there's not a whole lot of new information that's being given here, but it's being given from a different perspective. It's being given because it has a different purpose. In chapter 2, the focus is on Gentile nations. In chapter 7, the focus is on the Gentile nations. Here, the focus is on what God is doing in relation to the children of Israel. But now we come to the longest part, the little horn, the little horn, verses 23 through 26. Now, it doesn't say that this is the interpretation of the little horn. It it doesn't even mention the little horn here, but I just want you to note in the vision Daniel sees a ram, a male goat, and a little horn. The interpretation has to follow the vision. The interpretation, we've seen the ram, we've seen the male goat, that leaves the little horn. Okay, So we're talking about the little horn here. And notice in verse 23, the beginning of verse 23, the time that's mentioned here. It says, in the latter time of their kingdom... Uh, Their kingdom is the kingdom of the four horns, the four horns that are mentioned. So these are the generals of Alexander the Great who divided up his kingdom. It will come at the end of their kingdoms when this little horn comes out. So the little horn is a part of the third prophetic Gentile kingdom. He comes before the fourth prophetic Gentile kingdom which is the Roman Empire. So this little horn fits between Alexander the Great and the Roman empires. So it's also a time when Jewish rebellion has reached its fullness. It says in verse 23 there in the middle, when the transgressors have reached their fullness. So this is the time when Jews have been rebelling against God. They have been rejecting God. They have been following idolatry. And God says, that's enough, you've done enough, your wickedness has been accomplished and filled up before me, I am going to do something now. So this is the time, this is the time when this happens. This is the time after um, Alexander the Great, towards the end of the dominance of the Greek empire over the earth. It's the time before the Roman empire comes into power. That tells us the time here is going to be in the second century BC. It will be in the second century BC. So that's the time. And notice the king, verses 23, the end of verse 23 through 25. Seven quick points. (laughs) That might get a little trouble. Seven quick points. Okay. 
Notice, I'm going to try to go through these pretty fast. Notice in verse 23, the last part of verse 23, it says, A king, a king shall arise, having fierce features, who understands sinister uh, schemes. So there's this king, that's the little horn. He's the king. He's going to treat all those who oppose him cruelly. And this king's going to be wise. He's going to understand riddles or confusing things. I think that's really talking about he's going to be a master of political maneuvering. He's going to be a master politician. He'll be able to control people through his politics and his political maneuvering. So he's a harsh and wise king. Notice in verse 24, this king will be powerful. It says his power will be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Okay, and also the holy people. So as great and powerful as this king is, it has to be understood his power doesn't come from himself. So two two views on that. Some people say the power comes from God. Other people say the power comes from Satan. He is given demonic power and influence i kind of go with the satan uh, view on this because it matches up with the end times but it, both both of them fit the biblical data okay the point is his power is not his own he is empowered by someone outside of him uh, to do this and there's four expressions there's four expressions of this king's power he will be, his destructive force will be amazing. It says he shall destroy fearfully. That's just saying people will be in awe of how destructive he is. He's going to be successful. He'll prosper. He's going to thrive. He's going to get what he wants. And finally, he will destroy mighty men, those who he conquers. He's going to conquer mighty men. But most importantly, it says he's going to destroy the holy people, or he's going to try to, he's going to oppress the holy people, that is, the Jews. He's going to specifically persecute the Jews. He's going to be a powerful king. Now notice verse 25, there's five things here, and I'm just going to run through them real quick. The king's going to use his wisdom to be deceitful. It says in verse 25, through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. So he's going to be deceitful. In the next phrase, we see that he's going to be prideful. He shall exalt himself in his heart. He's going to have pride. In the next phrase of verse 25, we see that he's going to destroy people when they feel secure. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. People are going to be like, okay, all the wars are over, everything's good, and here comes this king to destroy them. He's going to exalt himself even over the God of the Jews. Look at the phrase, the following phrase. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. I think that's a reference to the Most High God. He's going to exalt himself over God. And lastly, it says, but he shall be broken without human means. He's not going to die in battle, and he's not going to die in an assassination. This king that we're talking about here is Antiochus IV Epiphanes. And the description here fits him exactly. He's a king of the Seleucid Empire, one of the four empires of the four horns that come up after the one big horn. 
He's the king of the Grecian Empire. He was cruel and gained his power by political maneuvering. His power and his influence that he had were so amazing, it's clearly not of his own. He was deceitful and prideful. He was even trying to get the Jews to abandon their culture and accept Greek culture, which would have included worshiping Greek gods. He persecuted the Jews. He blasphemed and oppressed the Most High God. And he wasn't killed in battle, nor was he assassinated. He died of some other illness, physical illness. So because of the history that we know about, because of the description that we're given here in, in Scripture, this king in the latter time of the Grecian kingdom is referring to none other than Antiochus Epiphanes. And here's the conclusion. Here's the conclusion to the interpretation. Verse 26. The vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Here when it says the vision of the evening and mornings. This is talking about the vision of the little horn. You remember, if you look back in verse 14, in verse 14, your Bible will say 2,300 days or better, it should say 2,300 evenings and mornings. So here in verse 26, when Gabriel refers to the vision of the evenings and mornings, he's referring to the vision of the little horn. And he's referring to the things that the little horn's going to do to the nation of Israel. And those 2,300 days are the six years and four months from the time that Antiochus Epiphanes has the high priest murdered and replaced with his own high priest until Antiochus Epiphanes dies. It's six years and four months. Gabriel says this is the vision and it is absolutely true. And he tells Daniel, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. To seal it up doesn't mean to keep it secret. Doesn't mean don't speak about it, okay? If that were true, then Daniel broke that when he wrote down this vision. So that's not what it's referring to. It refers to the preservation of the vision and interpretation. Keep it safe. And we might even say when it says seal up, says, keep it preserved for the time when people will need it. And so when we look at this, the little horn is the king that comes. The king that will come at the end of the Grecian Empire. He will come immediately before the Roman Empire. And he sets the stage for the coming of the Messiah. What's Daniel's reaction? Verse 27, quickly. Daniel's reaction. He faints. He gets sick, he gets so physically sick, he faints. I don't know if you've ever been that sick before, so sick that you can't stand up and you faint. That's what happened to Daniel. When, when Daniel hears about the difficult times that his people, the Jews, will have, when he hears about the desecration of Jerusalem and the temple, it makes him ill and he faints. Takes him a couple days to recover, the text says, but then he goes right back to work. 
It's kind of ironic that it mentions Daniel just goes right back to work. He goes about the king's uh, business. And he says, I was astonished by the vision. He's amazed, but no one understood it. So apparently he shared it with other people, but no one could understand it. So here in this passage, we are given the picture of three of the prophetic Gentile kingdoms that have been mentioned in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. The first kingdom is the kingdom that Daniel's now serving in in chapter 8, and that is the Babylonian kingdom. Belshazzar is a Babylonian king. The second kingdom is the kingdom of Cyrus the Great, the Medo-Persian kingdom. He's the ram that we see here. The third kingdom is the kingdom of Alexander the Great, the Grecian kingdom, the male goat that is mentioned in this chapter. The difference between Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 2 and chapter 7 when it comes to these Gentile kingdoms is that here in chapter 8, it doesn't mention the fourth Gentile kingdom. It only mentions the first three. only mentions the first three. Why is that? Because this chapter is giving us information that is preparing the Jews for the coming of the Messiah. He will come during the fourth Gentile kingdom. Jesus comes during the kingdom of the Roman Empire. This is preparing the Jews to tell them this will happen before the Messiah comes. They know there's going to be trouble. Why is Daniel so upset? He knows there's going to be trouble for the Jews before the Messiah comes. It's not going to be things getting better and better and better. They are going to have tough and difficult times. And the reason they're going to be tough and difficult is because Israel is in the midst of idolatry. They've always struggled with idolatry, and they're in the midst of that. And there has to be a turnaround before the Messiah can come. And God is using the Gentile nations to bring about that transformation. Now, when we see all this happen, we see these Gentile nations. And we're here in December, coming up on Christmas, the birth of Christ. Have you ever asked the question, how does the birth of Christ relate to all these things we've just studied? I mean, when we look at the birth of Christ, we see so many details. We see details that we just take for granted. The Romans are in charge. Well, why is that? How can Caesar Augustus say anything that would have an impact on the Jews in Israel? How, why? How is that? This chapter and the book of Daniel give us the answer to that. How is it that Herod is king over the Jews? How is it? Herod is a Gentile Edomite. He's not even a Jew. How is it that he can become king? Daniel chapter 8 gives us information that leads to us knowing why Herod is king over the Jews. Why is it? that the New Testament mentions Quirinius as governor of Syria. What's Syria got to do with Israel? 
Well, when you know a little bit of history, you know that in the Roman Empire, the governor of Syria actually ruled Judea and Samaria. So he ruled over Israel. That's why he's mentioned. We know from history that Antiochus Epiphanes persecuted the Jews and he caused the Jews to rebel. That rebellion was called the Maccabean Revolt. And when the Maccabees retook Jerusalem in 164 BC, they cleansed it and they rededicated. And we call that the feast or the celebration of Hanukkah. It's what they celebrate today. That cleansing and rededication of the temple. We see all these things happening in relation to Daniel chapter 8. And it's setting the stage for the coming of Jesus Christ. It's setting the stage for the birth of the Messiah of Israel. So I think it's just amazing. And I think we should praise God that when we see all these things come together, what he has prophesied actually takes place. And we see how it works into God's plan, preparing the Jews for the coming of the Messiah. We see all that happen in our Bibles taking place. We should praise God because he is the ruler of the kings, kingdoms of men, and he accomplishes his plan. Now, what's that mean for us? Well, in our day, Israel just had an election. They just had an election, really important election over in Israel. I'm interested in it. I'm not worried about it. Not worried about it. We just had an election. I'm pretty interested in that. We know the results, but I'm not worried about the results. Each of us are dealing with cares and concerns that we are very interested in, but we don't need to worry about them. Because the best place, the safest place you can be is in God's plan. As part of God's plan. You know, there's only one thing that exceeds being in God's plan, and that's knowing where you're at. In God's plan. And by studying our Bibles and studying prophecy, we can know exactly where we are at in God's plan. That means we know what came before and we know what will come in the future. And when we know where we're at in God's plan, it brings us great confidence, brings us great joy, and brings us great peace. Because we know when the Bible speaks of things, we know if it's speaking about us today or about sometime in the future or sometime in the past. When we know God is working out his plan, and he is, when we can see how God has worked out his plan and we can see it happen throughout history, when we understand what phase of God's plan we are now in, that we are in today, when we see and understand all these things, and when we are faced with trials, when we are faced with physical issues, health issues, work issues, whatever it might be, 
when we're faced with family difficulties, when we're faced with community difficulties and political chaos that we have in our country right now, when we're faced with all these things, when we know God's plan and where we, were at, where we are at in God's plan, we can say with the hymn writer, when sorrows like sea billows roll, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, we can say, what's that phrase? It is well with my soul. God has revealed his plan. He has revealed history to Dan, or future to Daniel. To us, it is history. But we can see, if God can predict the future and accomplish his plan, then he can do what he has planned even today and into the future. And knowing where we're at in God's plan gives us peace, confidence, and joy. And we can say it as well. Please stand with me as we close. So let me apologize to the ladies' Sunday school class teacher. I just used up some of your time here. Um, and uh, so everybody make sure you grab a quick snack or drink and head to your Sunday school classes. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness.